The High Files podcast wishes you a very happy Christmas. This episode is like a Christmas cracker filled with magical audio delights and is our gift to you. If you would like to give back to the podcast, please rate and review the show in iTunes, so new High Filers can find the show. As always, visit onyxedgestudios.com for all sorts of altered fun. Enjoy the show and spread the love. I get gloomy with the state of the world, I think about the arrivals gate at Heathrow Airport. General opinion starting to make out that we live in a world of hatred and greed. But I don't see that. Seems to me that love is everywhere. Often it's not particularly dignified or newsworthy, but it's always there. Fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, husbands and wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, old friends. When the planes hit the Twin Towers, as far as I know, none of the phone calls from the people on board were messages of hate or revenge. They were all messages of love. If you look for it, I've got a sneaky feeling you'll find that love actually is all around. I'll never forget the time I heard a woman tell me she loved me, then immediately recant her words. No, it's not what you think. She didn't regret saying it. She just didn't know how to say what she really meant. We had only known each other for a short time, a couple of evenings to be precise, and neither one of us was under the delusion that we would know each other for much longer. We were two ships passing in the night. We knew it. We embraced it. An instant in time, fleeting and free, a moment made more beautiful by its brevity. I remember how she said I love you. She was sitting on my lap as we casually conversed. Her hand drew near her mouth, intended to join cigarette to lips, but fell carelessly away when I suddenly made her laugh. Her head reared back and her smile involuntarily split into open-mouthed joy, exposing her shining teeth to the evening light. Her laugh was pure reflex, and so were the words that followed once eye contact was regained. As she recovered from laughter in a giggle-filled day crescendo, she breathed that timeless phrase, I love you. The sentiment was spontaneous and free, but just as fast as the spontaneity had manifested, social norms zipped into correct course. I mean, I don't love you, but I love you. You know? It was an unfortunate sort of awkwardness. The problem was... I knew what she meant. I don't love you, but I love you. Words failed. What she meant was, I'm totally absorbed in this moment. We're sharing exactly what each other need right here and now. But the term I love you has strings attached. A promise of future trysts, perhaps? A lopsided emotional connection? The potential for misunderstandings? An overextension by any measure? But... I have no other words, so... 
It was love, just not romantic, sexual, have-my-babies love. So we got hung up on the words, instead of the intended meaning. I recall other times our culture's narrow definition of the L-word barred my emotions, leaving them stunted and unexpressed. As a young child, I watched my parents divorce. I was seven years old and didn't know shit. My dad was largely squeezed out of the picture due to reasons I did not, nor could not, nor should not, understand. In the midst of the adult war, I sometimes talked to my father on the phone. I remember standing in the kitchen, barefoot, toes curling against the cool linoleum. My tiny hand held the receiver, while the other nervously twisted at the spiraled telephone cord, an obligatory feature of 80s technology. I don't remember what we talked about, probably how school was going or what my favorite cartoon was, but to this day I do remember, every time a call with my dad ended, he would say I love you. But my young mind had already associated the L word with male-female, last-forever, kissy-face, romantic love. Such language in the context of father and son felt out of place, so I echoed the words back as quickly as I could, lowering my voice, rushing. Of course I loved my dad, but the words were alienated from my emotions. They failed to resonate because they were hijacked by Hollywood depictions of love. What satisfaction canst thou have tonight? The exchange of thy love's faithful vow for mine. Oh. I gave thee mine before thou didst request it. And yet I would it were to give again. Wouldst thou withdraw it? For what purpose, love? But to be frank, and give it thee again. <laughs> and yet I wish but for the thing I have. My bounty is as boundless as the sea. My love is deep. The more I give to thee, the more I have. For both are infinite. <laughs> I love that you get cold when it's 71 degrees out. I love that it takes you an hour and a half to order a sandwich. I love that you get a little crinkle above your nose when you're looking at me like I'm nuts. I love that after I spend a day with you, I can still smell your perfume on my clothes. And I love that you are the last person I want to talk to before I go to sleep at night. And it's not because I'm lonely, and it's not because it's New Year's Eve. I came here tonight because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. You see, that is just like you, Harry. You say things like that and you make it impossible for me to hate you. Maybe it's better. It's better this way. Don't talk like that. You'll be all right. We're together now. Everything's going to be fine. You'll see. And at least I got to see you. One last time. No, no, please, please, please don't leave me. I love you.
such shallow definitions of love were reinforced by sappy, melodramatic love ballads my mother would blare over the car radio on the way to the grocery store. I don't know much But I know how to love you And that may be all I need to know Keep his mind on nothing else. He takes the world for the good things found. If she is bad, he can't see it. She can do no wrong. Turn his back on his best friend. He puts her down. I wake up lonely. So there I stood, emotionally suppressed, unable to connect the word love to the tenuous bond with my father. I hung up the phone, confused. But I'm not some cold, hard-hearted mutant. I was just a casualty of limited linguistics. A truth better explained by Robert Sapolsky, professor of neurology at Stanford University. So what begins to be intrinsic in all of this is the notion that language shapes the way you think. And this harks back to a grand old theory in linguistics and language acquisition in two guys early in the 20th century, Sapir and Worf, and the Sapir-Worf hypothesis being that language constrains thought that your capacity for thinking, the way in which you think, is constrained by the language that you have been taught, the language you speak, and that has been debated endlessly in terms of just how much evidence is there for that versus how much the style of thought shape what the language is. This has endlessly been debated and it's one of the sort of hallmarks of what linguistics is about. In the last decade, two populations, two traditional populations in the Amazon that were studied that are viewed as giving really major support for a strict superior wharf notion that your capacity for thought, the nature of your thought, is deeply shaped, potentially deeply constrained by language. So these two tribes, the one, the first is called the Paraha, and the other is called the Mandruku, I believe. And what you have in both of them is a very different number system than we have, than virtually every westernized society does. In the first group, the Paraha, their number system consists of three numbers. One, two, and something bigger than two. In Munduruku, it's essentially the same thing, but it's five terms. It goes up to six terms, one, two, three, four, five, and all other numbers that are bigger than five. 
And I don't know completely what that suggests about how often you have to count stuff down there. But what it suggests is this is going to be a very different relationship with numbers. And what they show, studies with these folks, is doing mathematical uh, computations, doing estimates, doing everything in the second tribe with numbers up to five, the exact same level of accuracy as would a westernized individual. But get above five and accuracy goes down the drain. Somebody in that society has a huge amount of trouble telling the difference between six objects and eight objects, eight objects and ten objects, because they all get bucketed as how many are there. It's the number that means more than five. And in the first group, you see the same exact thing for any number above three. There's a lot of trouble being accurate distinguishing three from four from five and so on because they all have the same term. They are that number that is bigger than two. All of that occurring, once you get above those numbers, guesses essentially at the chance level. So that's kind of impressive and very interesting, but maybe there's always this potential kind of uh, counterinterpretation as to what's happening there, which is maybe these are not terribly sharp folks there, and maybe have had all sorts of issues with protein malnutrition or cerebral malaria or God knows what. No, because in each of these populations, each of these cultures, they know thousands of different types of edible plants and medicinal plants. These are enormously sophisticated people in those realms. Numbers just aren't a big deal. And what you see is somebody growing up in that society who has not invented the language, but are instead acquiring it, it constrains their ability to tell the difference between the numbers three and four. Very shaping in that regard. So all sorts of people debating endlessly how much does language shape the way you think, how much does thinking shape the sort of language you come up with. But at the end of the day, there's this whole sort of philosophical business that no matter how similar the language is that you're using with someone else, it's going to mean something slightly different to you. And thus you have the flip side to our ethology soundbite. Ethology is interviewing an animal, but it's an own language. Sort of the flip side, a quote once, the effect of if you could interview a lion in its own language, you wouldn't have a clue what it was talking about. Because communication is so intertwined with mind, with values, with meaning, all of that, that it would essentially be inaccessible. And you hear about people who are multilingual. How many of you are pretty adept at a second language? Third language? Any hands up there? Whoa, OK. So those of you who are really comfortable in multiple languages, do you find you have different emotional, emotive styles of communicating when you're switching languages? Do you tend to have more expressivity in one of them? Do you tend to be more analytical, whatever? Okay. I'm going to pretend that there was just hundreds of faces going up and down agreeing with that stance because that's a well-known fact based on years of teaching Bio 150. Yeah, languages serve different functions and different emotions and different cognitions very intertwined. And at a true extreme, interviewing somebody in their own language, even if it is the same language that you ostensibly share with them, you're not quite going to be speaking the same language. The Sapir-Whorf Hypothesis Language Constrains Thought Language Constrains Thought I love you. 
I love Paris in the springtime. I love chicken and waffles. I love carpet. I love desk. I love lamp. I love lamp. I love lamp. This L word in the English language is so gray and washed out by the hype of impossible expectations and unrealities. It constrains the thoughts and feelings that should arise within us. It hides the true power and nature of that which we call love, that which we so desperately want to feel and communicate. But that doesn't mean it's non-existent. The great Ananda Ma stated, Reality is beyond speech and thought. Only that which can be expressed in words is being said. But what cannot be put into language is indeed that which is. It's as if love is this infinite resource, permeated throughout the fabric of reality, and our clumsy way of getting at it is through language. In effect, our words become a limiting factor, a constraint. Imagine your mind as a mechanical system, and in this system, thought and language are valves, controlling the flow of love like a fluid. Many process systems have to be supplied with a variety of fluids in order to operate properly. These fluids, which include liquids and gases, are carried throughout the plant by a maze of piping systems. The flow of the fluids through the piping systems is controlled by valves. Valves are used to control the flow of fluids in piping systems. When a valve is opened, fluid flow begins. When a valve is closed, the flow is stopped. Many valves are designed to operate in either the fully open or the fully closed position, but not in between. We'll call these valves on-off valves. In addition to starting or stopping the flow of a fluid, some valves are designed to regulate flow as well. This can be done by partially opening or closing a valve. Valves that operate in this manner are sometimes called either control valves or throttling valves, since they regulate or throttle flow. In modern American society, the English word love is no better than an on-off valve. In certain contexts, the valve is allowed to be open. But in other contexts, where the word seems ill-fit, we unwittingly turn the valve to the shut position. I recently had a friend who fell into dark times. When he was at the end of his rope, he sent me a text message that said, I love you. We have been friends for over two decades, and not once did we ever say to each other, I love you. Why? The same reason I rushed to hang up my dad's phone call. Language constrains thought. The L word keeps the valve shut. Our culture has killed the language of love. Dudes, even though you're doing this, we, we, we love you. We love you. Fags! But it's never too late, high filers. I think we can upgrade our on-off valve by turning it in to a throttle valve, at the very least. To do this, we simply need to improve our language. And I believe the way we can improve our language is by studying an ancient one. This is Sparta! I'll never forget a sermon I once heard in which the pastor quoted John 3.16. If you're not familiar with it, that verse begins with, 
For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. But the pastor delivered it by saying, For God so agaped the world. He was referencing the original Greek word that was used when that verse was written. Agape. In Greek, agape means the highest form of love. Love as charity. I found it intriguing that in Greek this is the highest form of love, suggesting the Greeks must have words for other forms of love. Then it dawned on me. I had heard another form of Greek love before. Philia. I know this word because it's the root of Philadelphia, whose nickname is the city of brotherly love. I'd also heard this Greek word used in the term scatophilia, which means, well, you know. Einem oh. Und einem oh, yeah. Immediately we can see that Greek has a 2x benefit over the English L word. But what other forms of love does Greek express? In an article titled, The Ancient Greeks, Six Words for Love and Why Knowing Them Can Change Your Life, social philosopher Roman Krisnarik answers this question with exquisite reflection and provides a way to loosen the constraints on our thoughts. But I'm not going to read this whole article to you, nor will I rattle off the definitions in list form. If I were to simply read the Wikipedia definitions of these love words, the best case scenario would be for you to learn them through rote memorization. Worst case scenario, you're entertained, but the knowledge, or the lesson, fades away with the outro music. Instead, we need to give these words real-world context. To achieve this, I enlisted the help of my friend Jimmy Lopez. Jimmy is not a philosopher or a linguist. He's not a scholar of ancient Greece. In fact, he doesn't even speak Greek. He's a regular Joe, a blue-collar worker. But Jimmy wears his heart on his sleeve and is an extremely genuine human being. When I first met him, I was struck by his authenticity and enthusiasm for life. The guy is full of passion. He seems to intuitively grasp the deeper meanings of love without being as limited as most by the L word. So without giving him any heads up as to why I was interviewing him, I sat down with Jimmy and attempted to glean a deeper understanding and grow a more flexible vocabulary for the language of love. Strap in, high filers. This is an incredible journey. L is for the way you look at me. O is for the only one I see. V is very, very extraordinary. E is even more than anyone that you adore. Can toi qui ne m'avais rien répondu? Je sais que tu ne m'avais pas cru. Doch seit ein paar Tagen brach ich nicht mehr nach zu schlagen, denn ich liebe nur dich allein. Pragma. 
Long-standing mature love exhibited by a relationship that works over time and shows patience and tolerance. Who's the most important person to you in your life? That's easy. It's my grandfather. Okay. That's a that's a real easy one. Tell me more about that, man. Like, why, out of all the people, you know, that you've ever had be a part of your life, what uh, what was the relationship with your grandfather like, man? What made it so special? My parents got married very young. I would say I think my mother was 19, my father was 21 when they had me. As most young people do, the stress of being young and having a newborn child got to them. And so they ended up calling it quits real early. And my earliest memories of me growing up was basically my mother working second shift, my father working third shift, and my dad... And my mother were not together, so I only got to see him on the weekends. So really, the primary father figure that I had in my life was my grandfather. He's half the reason that... Is this your mom's dad? Yep. Yeah, okay. my, my, my dad's father, uh, they had an estranged relationship. Um, half the reason why a lot of my family uh, can actually speak some Spanish, and my dad refuses to. Right. Because him and his father... They did not have a very copacetic mm -hmm. relationship, but um. So your mom's dad was there for you, or your a, mom? Yeah. Yeah, from a very early age, I remember going to kindergarten. Um, I used to live in Villa, or on Villa, which is in Dogtown, which is uh, right off Hampton and Forty Four. There's a Catholic school there called St. James the Greater, which was roughly, let's say, six to eight blocks, let's just say, from the house, and he would actually walk me to school kind of thing. I would I would get off school, and my grandma would read books to me while my grandpa was making dinner. Um, when I was a shithead, I would purposely flush an entire roll of toilet paper down the toilet. <laughs> yeah. He would uh, be the one to punish me. There's actually a really embarrassing story of when I was in kindergarten. Uh, I had a, you know, quote-unquote little girly friend. And I uh, was dared by one of the kids in my class to show her my little wiener. <laughs> and mind you, this is this is... Catholic school, St. James the Greater on Tam gotcha. Avenue. But and, you're at that age where you don't have the connotation to be like it's as wrong as it is. So you're not you don't you're not perverted. It's just you know, you're, oh well a dare's a dare. <laughs> so I did it. Yeah. And little did I know that that, you know, an eighth grader across the lunchroom mm -hmm. saw us doing this. You know, we were just kids. But then they told, like, a sister in the school, and then it got to the principal, and I got, you know, a note sent home that, like, mm -hmm. I didn't even I didn't even want to give it to him. But the second that I gave it to him, you know, I got my ass whooped. Like, this was, this was at the time that my grandfather was the type of man that he would make me go out back and pick a switch. Yeah. You know, but it wasn't, it wasn't... So it wasn't a fair weather father figure. He was the real deal. Yeah. But he gave me a lot of life lessons and tools that, as I grew up, I started to appreciate more and more, and I started to understand his wisdom more and more. This was this was a guy that, up until his dying days, which was uh, almost a year ago, <clears throat> he uh, 
didn't really talk about his uh, service time in Korea. Mm-hmm. And when he finally did tell me about some of the stuff that actually happened, it was kind of crazy. And I could, especially being my age, appreciate what he was shielding me from as a younger kid. There's no way that I could have, you know, comprehended the things that he saw and went through over there. You know, I mean, that was a that was a big deal to be just drafted as, you know, a kid. Do you have an example of something that floored you that he shared with you? Without getting into too much stuff, uh... Uh, I mean, there was, there was two things, there was two things, uh, that really stuck with me. One was he said that they were rolling into a village because he was a tanker. And, uh, as they were going through, uh, this little kid was standing in the road and they halted and they looked and he was holding a grenade. Mm -hmm. The pen was pulled. I mean, that's child. Like that's screwed up. And then honestly, I think, I think the biggest thing for him, especially because he was such a uh, family-oriented man, was that he and my grandmother had gotten pregnant right before he was drafted, and uh, the birth of his first daughter happened while he was overseas, so he was not able to actually be there for the, you know, birth of my aunt. Like, that's, I mean, that's his first kid, and he wasn't able to be there, and it just, that's something that any father, you know, would want to you know, want to do, be there for that kind of thing. And he totally missed out on it. That, that just sucks. What was the context that he shared this with you in? Because this is pretty intimate stuff. And we're talking about grandfather, grandson. I mean, are we sitting at a fishing hole? Is this, you see what I'm getting at? Like, are you you um, drinking beers when you're older? Uh, actually a bunch of, a bunch of these stories that he, uh, told me were as I got older and really, what it came down to was things like Thanksgiving dinners or Christmas dinners. My grandpa was a very quiet man. My grandma was more of the outgoing, loud, not a care in the world. Right. You know. Free spirit. <laughs> totally. I mean, my grandmother is the type of person that she had carpal tunnel uh, surgery and she brought a, uh, a classic four-inch vibrator to Christmas dinner and, and she was holding it and it's vibrating and everyone's like, Grandma, what are you doing? She's like, it's my hand massager. <laughs> and my grandpa's just face palming himself oh, like, man. oh, Pat, you knew that I didn't want you to do this, but you did it anyway. You know, <laughs> that's but, a cool sense of humor though. Yeah. And, and you know me, like I, I don't, I don't hold back. Nothing's off limits to me. I just, you know, I find humor in everything, so I mean, I get the, I get a lot of that from from them. But like I said, as I got older, you know, able to have a beer with my grandpa, things started coming out more and more. And I think that was just him finally coming to terms with I, you know, this is a life lesson or this is a story that, you know, I can't hold on to anymore. Like somebody's got to know this, and I need to share this with somebody. Like the coolest thing about my aunt and her birth was that when he finally got the word like his entire uh his entire crew platoon or whatever they uh they snuck beers in and they and they they grilled cheese on like a space radiator and Mm -hmm. like a pan and it was always one of those things that 
he, you know, he was like, oh, it's my world famous grilled cheese. <laughs> because to him, like, just the simpleness of a grilled cheese, being able to use that, you know, as a celebratory totem, like, that's seeing the simple things in life. That's beautiful that he shared it. And with actually, you. yeah, being able to enjoy that for what it is. Well, that's a pretty important life lesson. So, I mean, yeah, he, he taught me a lot and it really, it really sucks that it's not so much that he let go at the end, but, you know, after my grandmother had passed, he had realized that I've done a lot and I've passed on a lot of life stuff and on my, my, the last birthday I had, I took a day off and drove up to their house. And this was after my grandmother passed. And I spent the day with him and he told me some crazy stories about him and his brothers, like going on Vegas trips and doing all kinds of stuff that I'd never heard before. And I was like blown away that there, even, even upon his dying days, he still had all kinds of stories that he hadn't told (laughs) and it's like what hasn't he told me you know like it is interesting to think about the extra capacity that could have been there but it sounds like you had a very long relationship that matured and changed as you matured and changed yes so he gave you many different types of things he gave you discipline Mm -hmm. he gave you wisdom Mm -hmm. he gave you advice Absolutely. He gave you stability. Mm -hmm. What do you think you gave him in return? Do you think it was a two-way street, or was he raising a a boy and that was pretty much it? Or did he maintain this relationship into your adulthood because he was getting just as much out of it as you were? Well, yeah. um, One of my my hobbies that I do now is, uh, like, small woodworking stuff. You know, making stools, you know, making knickknacks and crap like that. But when I was growing up, that's actually one of the things that I learned from him was how to use these tools, how to do these things. We would actually go down in his little wood shop that he had in the basement and make things like these little buildable deers for Christmas and these little cardinal wood knockers that he would make for everybody in these fly swatter holders like <laughs> it, it totally was a two-way street I think it was a way of him reconnecting because when he was when he was an early father he worked two jobs while my grandmother stayed at home he missed a lot of his kids growing up and I think that was a way of him really he was able to go back and reclaim that missed time through a different generation. Yeah, yeah, and and really appreciate more family. And the fact that you were present and you weren't a bratty kid that was like, oh, his grandpa, you know. No, oh, I was a bratty kid, that's for sure. But you know what I mean, you were, <laughs> you were there. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, something as simple as when he passed away, you know, as the as the brothers and sisters were going through all the stuff in the house they were like okay we're divvying up stuff who wants this who wants this who wants this who wants this and as they started going through stuff they would flip things over and they would see people's names on it like he had divvied them up for certain people like one of the things i got was a yardstick when i was a kid and i actually have the picture it's me uh, maybe five at the most i got my little 
Mickey Mouse slippers on. I got a, uh, do you remember those McDonald's Happy Meals that were like a pumpkin and a witch and oh, yeah. a ghost? Okay, well, I had the pumpkin one on my head as a helmet, <laughs> and there's and there's a little a yardstick in my hand, and it was I used it as a hockey stick. Oh, that's cool. Man. And, and and you're wearing a blue shirt right now, so big hockey fan. Huge, so you, huge. So you can see back in that picture already. And that was that was totally him. He he definitely you know leaned me that way. You know, as I got older, I really appreciated the sport more. Started playing it and everything like that. But I definitely got that from him. The love of that game. So you really were like his little surrogate. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I was his little right hand man for sure. Like <laughs> while I while I was you know, you know before, and that was probably, I would say eighty nine to, maybe let's say ninety two when my parents got back together. When they got back together, uh, they bought a house out in Cedar Hill, and that's when we moved out there. It was finished around ninety three when we moved out there ninety three, and I was still close to him. Called him from time to time, just to see how the hell he was doing. Stopped by from time to time. Didn't, didn't need to call or anything like that. You just show up. Door was always, well, it was locked, but door was <laughs> o- door no, was I always you mean. door was always open. You know, and yeah, I still wish that I would have had a little bit more time with him. But I'm, I mean, I'm thankful and grateful for the times that I had. It doesn't sound like you have any regret. None whatsoever. I mean, like I said. As much as I love my mom and my dad, I am who I am because of my family presence, and he was part of that. So that's why I always, you know, look up to him. Arrows, a dangerous, fiery, and irrational form of love that represents the idea of sexual passion and desire. What's the most irrational thing you've done for or because of a girl? Oh, boy. Um, the most irrational thing. Okay. <laughs> Took me a second, but that, that was ridiculous. So, uh, around the time I was 17, I was in a car accident with my best friend at the time. Died in my lap. Dealt with that really hard. Had a, had a girl friend, and then she ended up breaking up with me. Blah, 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 blah. In a last-ditch effort... Uh, we were in a car with somebody else, and she was like, let's play Popeye. Do you remember that game? No. Okay, so you're driving down the road. You see somebody with a uh, with one headlight out. Popeye. Oh, we called it something different. Okay. But yeah, you had to call it out, and then... Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, well, how are we going to do this? She goes, as soon as you... As soon as, you know... You call Popeye, you get to make somebody take off an article of clothing. And I was like, okay. And I purposely lost that game to get completely buck-ass naked. (laughs) And, God, I don't think I've ever told anybody this story. Because it's so stupid. Because I just... It was just just you and her? It was me, her, and somebody else that I'm not going to admit who it was. That's okay, that's okay. But uh, uh, another friend. Yeah. And it was dumb and stupid and it was like i said it was my last last ditch effort to try and get her back mm-hmm. and like i was even like fluffing that shit up <laughs> in oh. the back seat i'm like hey look at this never once turned around to look and i'm i felt like such an idiot sitting in the back seat of this car i mean seriously i was completely naked and i i was like i said i didn't know i was young and stupid 
What was going through your mind? Do you think? I mean, how did you feel? How well, did you feel about her? Uh, well, the the whole reason that I was trying to do what I was doing was because she had, and I didn't even know this at the time, she had cheated on me with somebody else, and they had broken up. After, like, after she left me, she immediately got with him. They had broken up, and I had heard they were broken up, so I was like, okay, so I invited her to Monster Jam. <laughs> <laughs> All right? And, uh... I was basically just trying to prove, oh, I'm wacky and crazy, and look at me. Do you feel like you were being somebody other than your true self? Absolutely. Uh, Yeah, I was reaching for straws real hard. Like, one time after school, after she had gotten off school, because I was graduated at the time, but she was still in school, I was like, I was like, baby, I need you to come over. She's like, why? I was like, I just, I just need you to come over. And she's just like, well, I'm super busy, but I can come over for like five minutes. And I'm like, okay. And like, I went to the gas station and bought fucking roses and plucked the petals off and laid a line down to my room in my parents' basement. And when she came in, I was like, I like, as soon as she opened the door, cause I closed the door, which I never had my door closed, but uh-huh. I had the door closed. She opened it up and I fucking immediately hit play. And it was like our song. And I was like, just come dance with me. So fucking oh, pathetic. Yeah. But how old we're talking about like teenage, late teens. Oh yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah I mean like, Young, dumb, full of cum. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Tr- trying, trying anything to just get back with the girl that touched my penis last. Like, right. <laughs> like, please, please, just be with me. Oh, fuck him. I'm so much better. Like, I never said any of that shit, but like, I was like, just dance with me. I'll hold you forever. Do you look back on her with any fondness, or is it all sour grapes? I look back at the times we shared as a total life experience. Um, but I definitely realize now that like, as a young kid, you know, you throw, you know, terminology out that you definitely don't know the meaning of. Like? Like, oh, I love you, baby. I didn't love her. Like, you know, I, I loved her as much as I knew that I could or, you know, possibly could at the time. But like... A lot of it, like I said, a lot of it had to do with, you know, a young kid that was dealing with something traumatic and was just trying to hold on to that last bit of whatever. And now I look back at it, I take, I, there's no way I would ever take it back. If I, if I could do it all over again, you're damn right I would because right. I learned some great experiences from it. Right. Yeah. You have to live, you have to learn, you know, you love, you lose. It, it's all, it's all part of life. If she was sitting here right now, is there anything you'd want to say to her? Like, just with your wisdom of being an older older guy? Like, she literally came here right now, walked up, tapped on the window. Or uh, would it just be, hey, you? It would be, hey, you. Because, like I said, I hold no resentment towards her whatsoever. I have no reason to. It was what it was. Exactly. Yeah. It was two kids that were young and in love for what they thought was love, and... I mean, I do cherish those times because, I mean, it like I said, everything you do in life shapes who you are. Now, you can say that now, though, it was what it was. Now, after your last-ditch effort failed, one month later, if she had come up and tapped on the window, <laughs> would it have been a different story? Oh, hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Well, Did it ever turn into, like, animosity? or was Yes, it- absolutely. I went 10 years without... Uh, without ever wanting to fully commit to anyone because of that. 
I can uh, definitely understand. You know, I would see or, you know, date or whatever, but never did I ever want to commit to anything. All I thought about at that time was I would just, I'm young, I want to have fun, and I want to do my own thing. A lot of it was self-loathing and, you know, a fucking terrible pity party that I threw my for myself for 10 years, right. but at the same time... I look back at it now and I'm like, I may have done that, but I've met some of the best people I've ever, you know, met in my entire... Fuck, me and Tim, we were talking about this. If it wasn't for Nate and Debbie getting an apartment off Butler Hill and Chris Nays coming over, he would have never invited Mike Daffron down. Right. And that's pretty much the group of people we're hanging out with tonight. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I would have never met... I would have never met Tim. I would have never met Scott. I would have never met you. Yep. And... And I hate to say it, but like... I was I was such a stage four fucking clinger boyfriend at that time that I probably wouldn't have been hanging out with them anyway. That's a good point. So like, I mean, when you really think about it, no, if, no regrets. Absolutely none, because I've met some of the best people that I could have ever met, and I am so unbelievably thankful for that. Because as we get older, and everyone knows it, people get married, they have kids, they have families of their own. They have their own responsibilities. We all have fucking jobs. Every single one of us has a job that puts food on our on our plates, on our kids' plates, that puts a roof over our heads or our kids' heads. So, yeah, you start to, you know, not be able to hang out with your friends as much. But it doesn't matter. They're still your friends. Yep. And you still make time for them. As, you know, sporadic as it may be, you still make time for them. So. It's really interesting to trace history back, isn't it? <laughs> Felucia, self-love. The idea that if you like yourself and feel secure in yourself, you will have a wider capacity to love others. You had a stint in your life. I mean, you and I have both had our stints of drinking, right? Mm -hmm. Is there anybody that ever, you know, that looking back on it now, did the anger ever, were you ever quenching anger with drinking? And if so, who was the person on the other side of that anger? <sighs> Probably my own self, actually. I mean, I was a... Uh... 30 pack every other day kind of guy for a long time and a lot of times I would be at work and I'd be on you know those quick trip mugs that are like 64 ounces oh yeah the ginormous fucking just huge ones or like the big bubba mugs for you southern folk out there might as well be a cooler with a handle on it yeah uh, I'd be on like my fourth or fifth one of those and I hadn't fucking pissed once all day because I was so dehydrated and I'd be like oh my god when I get off work, I'm just going to go home and sleep. And just instinctually, I would fucking stop at a gas station and fucking buy beer and be drinking it. And be like, what the fuck am I doing? Mm -hmm. Like, that shit pissed me off. But, like, other than that, like, no. like. What, uh, what do you think it was about yourself? Because I found that the drinking was my way of turning everything off. Turning the volume down to number one or m minimum on the dial because I didn't want to deal with the real reality of who was me. What were you turning the dial down on? The pain of reality, I guess. Trying to trying to explain to my own self how to be myself and still trying to figure it out, but not knowing how to deal with, you know, the complex emotions that I was going through. 
And really the easiest way to do that is to just turn on my favorite band at the time, turn on a fucking, like I used to have in my ceiling fan, there were no lights. It was all red lights. Mm-hmm. Uh, those party bulbs. And I would just sit down in my basement and I would crank the music up and just sit on my floor and drink by myself. That was fucking terrible. Like, who did that? Who does that kind of shit? You know who does that? Country musicians. That's who does that. Yeah. Like, like, oh man, they're pissed off because their fucking John Deere tractor broke down and their dog has a fucking cleft foot. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I just, I... I just, I didn't know how to deal, and to me, that was how to do it. And as I got older, I'm like, this is fucking stupid. Did you feel like you didn't have permission to have certain emotions? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Expound on that, if you don't mind. I had a teacher in high school. It was probably after you graduated. Um, It was an art teacher. You went to Northwest? Yep, went to Northwest. Uh, It was an art teacher, uh, Miss Tebow. Yeah, that was after my time. Uh, she was a, she was a, <clears throat> and I forgot what Indian tribe she belonged to, but she was still like reservation living style, like mm-hmm. Native American, like you know, practiced all of their rituals and awesome. Had the paperwork. Oh mm-hmm. my god, yeah, she was cool. And I was sitting in her class one day, and. Um, had my earphones in, which, you know, we weren't allowed to have, you know, you know, our disc men were in our fucking hoodie pocket. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, you would cut a hole in the inside of it and run. run. For you young folks, that's a CD player. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I didn't even think about that. It was an iPod that actually played this little disc. Uh, yeah. So, you know. You know, as you're walking, if you would walk too hard, it would start skipping, and it would have a four-second delay on it. I was, I was doing there. There is this, there is this art project I remember. It was vanishing points. Mm-hmm. So you, you, you draw a horizon. You put a dot, and then you draw like a cityscape that you know vanishes into the distance. And we were doing that one day, and I, she didn't care that I would do that. She knew that I would do whatever and I just had my hood up put my earplugs in I started listening and she walks over to me and she's like God Jimmy I'm like what she's like turn that shit down and I was like what and she's like give it here so I handed it over and she starts listening to it she's like what the hell are they saying I'm like oh this song's called Rats mm-hmm. and she's like what I'm like it's Rats and she's like I don't understand anything what is this garbage I was like it's Mortician She's like, what is this? I'm like, it's death metal. And she's like, I will never understand you kids. I will never understand you. But as I started opening up to her more and more, because she started opening up to me, yeah. we we were sharing a connection because growing up at Northwest, um, there was actually a kid, and I don't remember what his name was, but he had a bumper sticker on his truck that said, if I would have known things would have turned out this way, I would have picked my own cotton. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the type of school that Northwest yeah, is. Yeah, oh, trust me, I uh, remember. And, you know, growing up, a kid that's white as hell with the last name Lopez, people fucking just picked up on that and fucking fired on it all the time. Same with her. She looked Indian. She, you know, showed up with beads and stuff, mm-hmm. you know, chokers and stuff. So people were picking on her all the time. So we would... and and. 
I don't think it was inappropriate by any means because there was definitely no sexual tension or yeah, anything like right. that. But it was just something that we could bond over. Was she that she treated you like a peer in that exactly? Realm. Yeah. And so, like, as I started opening up to her more and more, she was like, "I really understand this." And I was like, "What do you mean?" And she's like, "You're just an angry young kid, and you're looking for any outlet." And so you immediately gravitated to the thing that makes the most sense to you, and that's music. And music has always made the most sense to me. So what did I do? I went to the most extreme fucking music that I could find because I was angry. I so I, I went the same thing. straight to death metal. Um, one of my favorite bands of all time is Blood for Blood, and they were just it's it's white trash hardcore rock and roll. Like it's it's hardcore punk, but most of their lyrics are about getting drunk and being pissed off and angry at the world. And when I was young, I didn't understand it. I was just like, yeah. Yeah, fuck you, fuck you. But really, I think about it now, I'm like, those were the emotions that I was feeling at the time, but I didn't know how to let those out. You, It was easier to hear the echo of somebody else having those emotions than for you to actually feel the emotions come through you yourself. Mm-hmm. And so that's what the drinking did when maybe music wasn't echoing it back hard enough. You were, You just needed to turn the dial down because you didn't know how to feel it. And I just, yeah, I just, it was, it was an escape. For me, it was, uh, feeling vulnerable. I view myself as a problem fixer, you know? Oh, I've got things under control. Oh, I can always figure a way out of things. But in relationships, it's not up to you. You know, it's a 50-50 transaction, whether that's parent to kid, husband to wife, Worker to coworker, friend to friend, you know, it's a, it's a transaction and you're not in control. And for me, I didn't know how to feel vulnerability. Instead, it was easier to think that I was completely in control and I choose to drink, you know, and mm-hmm. that was my way of turning down and never having to be vulnerable. That's the, I'm just sharing with you. That's the emotion. I mean, smoking weed was the exact same thing too. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't just booze. It was... Whatever you could get. Yeah. I mean, I I was just looking to get blitzed out of my mind as much as I could. And, yeah, it's just to take yourself out of the reality and the harshness of life. And it's, it's a coping mechanism. That's what it is. It's a coping mechanism. And it's not the best one that you could do. Mm-mm. But when you're young and dumb and full of cum, like you said earlier... Yeah. You know, you're going to do whatever you can to just get out of whatever situation it is for as little of a time as you possibly can and stop thinking about it. Well, especially something that's socially acceptable. They don't ever show a Budweiser commercial with a person under a fan with red lights drinking alone, but it's socially acceptable to drink, so it's easily accessible. Yeah. Of all these people that you've told me stories about tonight... Or anybody that you didn't tell me a story about tonight. Can you think of anybody that you owe an I love you to? Who's the person that you haven't expressed it to in such a long time that you're overdue? Probably myself. Um, I hope that's not cliche. Probably myself, actually. Like, that's just... Be completely awkward and talk to yourself and say something to yourself that you've never said out loud before you're worth it 
I think that's really, I think it's a universal blanket statement, but it just rings true. And that's, and that's what's fucked up is because it's so universal. This world is so caught up in the goddamn Kardashian bullshit that you need to just look at yourself and realize at some point you're worth it. You are. Doesn't matter what that is to who it is or whatnot. And it took me a long ass time, but I've never really said that out loud. Really haven't. Then you did it, man. We broke new ground. Yeah. Ludus, playful love exhibited by affection between children, dancing strangers, laughing with friends, or other kinds of adult frivolity. What's the best time you've ever had with a stranger? With a stranger? <sighs> Man. Doesn't have to be opposite sex or anything. No, so many, so many crazy stories come into mind, but I will, okay, fuck it. I'm just going to say it as random as it is. Me and some friends had a good night at the casino. And by me and some friends, I mean, they did because I was always too fucking broke and poor because I was making about minimum wage when they were making like $15 an hour. And, uh. We went, ended up going to the strip club, and I abandoned my friends for a couple hours, and they were like, where the fuck have you been? And I literally just shat the, shat the shit, whoa, that would be fucking Shot terrible. the shit. Shot the shit with a guy at the bar for like an hour or two, and they were like, where have you been? I'm like, I've literally been sitting on this bar stool the whole time. And probably had a great time. And I had a fucking amazing time. What did you guys talk about? Uh, dude. What didn't we talk about? Honestly, that's what's crazy. In that small little window of an hour, I'm pretty sure we talked everything from politics, religion, sports, our personal lives, like all kinds of stuff. Everyone is just like, dude, that motherfucker was trying to get in your pants. <laughs> I don't look at it that way, but no. it was it was it was so random. And let's say that was the case, didn't happen. Does it? Does it dilute the fun you had at all? Hell no, because here's the thing. The whole time, he was having, like, all the strippers and stuff like that come up around, and, like, they were sitting on his lap and shit, mm -hmm. and he was like, hey, man, you want a private dance? And I'm like, no, nah, I'm good. And he's like, come on, man. They're giving me half-price dances tonight. And I'm just like, I don't want to spend your money. You've already bought me a couple drinks. Yeah. I still remember the conversation, so you haven't roofied me, so let's just fucking, <laughs> let's just keep this going. She has nice tits, and ma'am, you are very pretty, but, like, I'm just, I'm, I'm broke, and I'm only here with my friends. I only have so much money. I'm letting them do their thing, and he's like, okay, okay. And he was willing to just drop all kinds of bank on me, and and I'm I'm sure that he was writing half of it off as a fucking business oh, probably, expenditure. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he was saying, "Oh, I'm networking," but like he wasn't fucking networking. He was just fucking an old man that mm -hmm. popped a Viagra before he went to a fucking strip club. <laughs> like that's what he was doing. But it was actually a pretty good time. Right. Yeah, point being, you could have gone and you could have done the normal thing and you could have had these very shallow conversations trying to get your money. Mm -hmm. But instead you found some guy and just shot the shit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it still sticks in your mind. And how long ago was this? Oh my God. Probably forever ago. Oh yeah, it was forever and a half ago. So it, it was, was a fucking fun time. Oh, it was just, it was because it was so random. Like, you know, <laughs> 
who goes to a strip club and just fucking hangs out with some random dude. No one does. <laughs> like I said, that dude was probably trying to get in my pants, but you know what? He may have tried, but failed. And but you get you had fun. No, I had so much fun that night. It doesn't matter. Philia. Deep friendship or deep camaraderie that develops between brothers in arms who fight side by side on the battlefield. I was going to ask you a question about your friends, but... No, go ahead. Well, I was going to say a lot of your friends will probably listen to this. I don't give a shit. Ask me a question all you want. I was going to say, who's your best bro? Best bro? Right now, it's actually a tie. Okay, well, tell me about the two people. One guy that will not listen to this, so I can say whatever the fuck I want about his redneck ass, is uh, Nate Hodges. And the other one is definitely Mike Daffron. Uh, mm-hmm. Like like we were saying earlier, I love, I love, I, I consider Chris Nays one of my best bros. So maybe it's a three-way tie now that I fucking mm-hmm. think about it. All right, wait, fuck. Can, is there any way to smash those people together and talk about them as if they were one person? Absolutely. All right, so tell me about... This person, what about this friend, this friendship that you have, why is it important to you? What do you get out of it that enhances your life? Okay, so my oldest friend in the world, her name's Sarah. No matter no matter what happens in life, she will always be, always be someone that I love. Been friends with her since 1993. Do we get to see each other very much? No. Do we... Talk to each other all the time. Hell no. Do How I, did you meet her? When I when I grew up, from when I was young, I went from school to school to school to school. Because my parents were constantly moving. Uh, that had to do with, you know, man, long story long. Anyway, when I moved out to Cedar Hill in 93, I was forced into Our Lady Queen of Peace because my parents wanted to give me the Catholic school experience. You know, the seven-point grading system, more attention because of smaller classes. You know, the hands-on teaching, the one-on-one experience. My parents could interact with, instead of a plethora of teachers, one. She was actually one of the first people that noticed me when I first showed up. And as the years have gone on, she has How did she notice you? Did you come across the room and talk to you? Were you forced to... Oh, no. I walked I walked up. I walked up uh, at Our Lady Queen of Peace. All the kids sit outside of the buildings for the grade that they're in before, you know, school because parents drop them off and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And as I was walked up, you know, it's kind of hard to miss a fucking kid with his, with his shorts up to his fucking nipples, socks up to his <laughs> knees, and a fucking afro. Like, <laughs> it's kind of hard to miss that kid. He definitely wasn't here last year. Yeah. He wasn't here last year. It's like Uderbrotten from The Simpsons. <laughs> exactly. It's fucking terrible. Like, what were my parents thinking? Oh, that's right. You know, this was in a time when... You know, I was a skinny-ass fucking kid, but because I've always had a fat ass, I had to be in husky pants. Can't, can't get away with calling fucking, you know, regular fit husky anymore because, like, you know, these goddamn snowflakes nowadays, you don't want to hurt their feelings. So she sees you. Mm-hmm. Uh, she came up and actually introduced herself and introduced a bunch of other classmates. And it's kind of just a friendship that we've always had 
ever since then. That's pretty awesome. Um, she go to a different high school? Nope. We went to Northwest together. She went hers, and that's and that's the funny thing. She went one way, I went another. She went with the more popular kids and mm-hmm. was kind of hanging out with those. And I kind of went more towards the, I wouldn't say it was outsiders, but like basically floater kids. I, I mean, I was a floater kid in high school. I, I mean, I was a fucking hockey player that skated as a, you know, a recreational thing and listened to fucking metal and wore Abercrombie and Fitch. I was fucking everything. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I I was everything. I was able to fucking float between everybody. I had jock friends. I had freak friends. You know, you know, it's it's so weird to be at a party with dudes that are wearing fucking, you know, 69-inch shoe hiders and wearing tool shirts, and I'm wearing fucking shell conk break, you know, necklaces and a polo shirt. (laughs) But, like... But like we're sitting there talking about the Slayer fucking double disc live album and the and they're like, he knows about Slayer. Well, fuck yeah, I know about Slayer. I was kind of a floater that way too. So thinking of high school, people work so hard in high school to make sure their identities are on straight. Mm-hmm. But I noticed towards the end of high school, especially approaching graduation, those identities start to they mom- momentarily let them down because they're like, dude. I'm acknowledging the fact that I've known you since second fucking grade, you know? Uh, so tell me, Sarah, you, around graduation, do you distant. remember talking to her? We were distant because what had happened was that when Ryan passed away, the core group of friends that I had, I had, it was basically uh, four motherfuckers, okay? It was, it was Ryan Shirley who was basically the linchpin of the mm-hmm. group. It was a kid named James James Zoika. Phil Marshall and fellow fucking podcaster of the Rent is Due, Billy Voles. Okay, that was my social group. It was us five motherfuckers. And the funny thing about that is, is as kids, you had Billy, who was a dirty ass motherfucking skateboarder, but he played volleyball. (laughs) That's funny. Okay. Uh, you had Ryan, like I said, linchpin, who was a wrestler, but was also kind of like, a, like a, at the time, you know, pop punk was really, you know, cool and shit like that. So, like, he was more like that. James Zoika was the complete preppy. Uh, I would say Philip Marshall and I were more of kind of the, just, we were ourselves. Mm-hmm. But when the accident and everything like that happened, Billy was already friends with... Uh, Guys like uh, Nate Hodges with uh, Chris Nays. But anyway, so when the accident happened, like I said, my tiny little social circle that I had of five very close, intimate friends fucking broke up. Oh, man. Because so where did she fit into all this? She was off doing her own thing. Okay, I gotcha. She would still come in from time to time. We'd see each other, you know, down the hallways or whatever. But, like, I ended up gravitating more towards William. So was this the natural evolution of you shifting from your friends you had early on to friends you had later and then Absolutely. And nostalgia never played into it. You never kept in touch with with those early on friends like Sarah that you had? Uh, no, still to this day, Sarah and I are fucking really close. Well, that's what I was trying to get but, at. So did that nostalgia factor ever come up and rekindle the friendship after she drifted away a little bit? Totally. Oh, yeah, okay, totally. so tell me about that. Well, she was, she was dating somebody that was close to my family, and that really brought us, you know, closer together, and then they broke up, 
And then she got now she got back together with her now current and awesome fucking husband DJ. But that is that's that's another reason why it's really hard to be friends and so close with someone like Sarah, because I'm a guy, she's a girl, and no matter what people think, I'm always trying to get in her pants. When really, that's my fucking oldest friend in the entire world. Like it's never been like that, even though we air fucking quotations dated for like three weeks in fucking mm-hmm. eighth grade, which all dating was in eighth grade was sitting next to somebody and sharing a couple french fries with them at the lunch table. Like, But if Sarah was a Gary instead of a Sarah, you wouldn't have that problem. Nope. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Wow, that's a, it's crazy that we still can't, we don't have either the words or the social context to articulate something like that. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Yeah. When's the last time you talked to her? Coming up close to two months ago. Uh, is whenever I uh, took the leap of faith, which was one of the hardest things I've ever done, is giving up a very stable job because I wasn't happy, mm-hmm. and deciding to focus on myself and find something that was going to better me as a person. And you know, she was there for you. Yeah. Uh, basically, I was talking to her about you know, you know, insurance stuff. And I was like, look, I'm not going to be able to get the medications that I'm on because I'm going to lose my insurance and everything like that. And she was like, here's what you do. You come here. We've got $4 generics, blah, blah, because she works as a pharmacy tag. Yeah. And we started talking like that. And then one thing led to another. And she's like, oh, man, DJ and I, we made this puzzle for you. It's awesome. She sent me a picture of it. It's all these beers from around the world. They <laughs> fucking glued the puzzle together. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, man. It's 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 awesome. Like, it's, it's going to be something that's going to go really, it's going to look really good in my bar whenever I put it down there, when I get it from them. But, like, like I said, even still to this day, it doesn't matter what is going on in our lives. We could not talk to each other for six months. And... It's like no time has fucking passed. That's pretty badass, man. And it and it's in it's That's pretty badass that the same person that saw the Afro kid mm-hmm. with the shorts pulled up is the same one that's looking out for you two months ago. Yeah. Pragma, Eros, Philosia, Plutus, Philia. Now we know some Greek words, high filers. We've expanded our vocabulary and hopefully unconstrained some of our thoughts. But I learned a long time ago a truism from Tony Robbins. We're all familiar with the saying, knowledge is power. But Robbins says, knowledge is not power. Knowledge is potential power. Action is power. It's what you do with the knowledge. So yeah, we know these fancy Greek words. We've turned our on-off valve into a throttle valve. But now that we can tap into love a little bit better, what should we do with it? Well, here's what I propose. Something that will stretch you a little bit as a listener of this program. What I want you to do is think of somebody who you love in one of these capacities we've learned about. But because of the limits of the L word that you've thought in the past... Maybe you haven't told this person how you feel. Or maybe it's just long overdue. 
for you to tell this person how you feel. Think of this person. And then once you have a name, pick up the phone. This is the potential power of knowledge put into action. And it's going to be a little bit fun, but like I said, it'll be a stretch. Pick up that phone, call them, and when they answer, say, I love you. But don't say love. Say one of these new Greek words that we've learned. They'll probably be pretty much caught off guard. Say something along the lines of, what does that mean? And you can tell them. It's the Greek word that means this. Whether that's a long-standing, enduring, patient love like pragma, or a playful, I-just-really-think-you're-awesome kind of love like ludus. Whatever it is, call them and tell them that. See what door that opens. The night I had the conversation with Jimmy, I gave him the same challenge. And this is what happened. Hello? Amanda? What? What are you doing? I'm watching Teen Wolf. <laughs> You're watching Teen Wolf? Yeah, it's the last season. Okay, uh, I just wanted to call you and say I pragma you. What does that mean? I love you. Okay, are you drunk? Of course I am, but I don't say it enough, and I love you. Well, I love you too, more than anything. You're absolutely special to me, and you know that, right? No, I didn't know that. You gave me my niece and my nephew, and it's something that is way long overdue, and I just feel like I should say I pragma you. Okay, well, thank you. No, okay. Like, for real, though, I don't I don't say it enough. I love you. And I love you, too. Okay. That's honest to God all it is. Okay. All right, and seriously? <laughs> oh, don't fucking laugh at me. <laughs> Go on. Go on what? <laughs> well, I hope you know that the kids love you, too. And I, and I know that... I know they Ryan do. Ryan really adores you. Hell yeah, and hopefully Ellie eventually one day will love me as much as, you know, Ryan does, so. Oh, he will, because she follows in his footsteps. And, uh, also, I want to tell you right now that, uh, I got Ryan a second Christmas present. Okay. It's a, uh, it's a pair of skates. Are you kidding me? I got them for free. Okay. And they are adjusting so they'll actually go with his foot for a few years, hopefully. Oh, awesome. Yeah, they're tours like we used to wear when we played hockey. He's going to love it. Yes. I mean, he, like, he said that he wanted them for his birthday. Well, he's going to get them for fucking Christmas. That's awesome. So, but, no, for anyway, that's why I was calling you. Okay. Okay, it's long overdue, and I I should say it more, but, yeah. Well, thanks, and I love you, too. All right. I'll talk uh, to you later. Am I seeing you tomorrow? Uh, maybe. I, I, okay. can't, I can't guarantee it, but... Okay. All right? All right. All right, love you. Love you, too. All right, bye. Bye. But also, high filers... I have to practice what I preach. I have to do this thing I'm challenging you with, the thing I challenged Jimmy with, 
So even though it's something that still is hard for me to do, I picked up the phone, and here's what happened. something to say to you. Okay. I feel ya, you. <laughs> you. Okay. <laughs> Do you know what that means? Feel ya? Mm-hmm. No. It means I love you, love you. like brotherly love. <laughs> and every fiber of my monkey mind wants to turn this into a joke right now. But it's not a joke. We've known each other for a long, long time. We've been really good friends, if not best friends, for most of that time. And like you said in the past, you're like my creative collaborative partner or soulmate or whatever. And so I'm telling it to you. And everything wants me to turn it into a joke, but it's not a joke. So take that. <laughs> All right. Well, I feel you, you too. All right. So enjoy that. And uh, next time I talk to you, I'll make it a joke. How about that? Oh, all right. As long as this isn't like you telling me you're going to kill yourself. Nope, it's not. Not this time. All right. So just <laughs> just know it, and maybe I'll tell you again sooner rather than later. And you can tell it to me also, by the way. <laughs> okay, well, I am right now. I feel you, you. All right. <laughs> Sounds good, man. Take it easy. All right. All right, bye. Bye. I hope you can see the value in this now. I hope you really take action and do this. But before this program's over, I have to say, we forgot to give context to one of those Greek words for love. Agape. Selfless love extending to all people, whether family members or distant strangers. This is something, a kind of love, that we really can't look Jimmy or me or anybody else to explain. But it's really apt at this time of the year, at Christmas time. People love to make Christmas about sweet little baby Jesus. Hey, um, you know, sweetie, Jesus did grow up. You don't always have to call him baby. It's a bit odd and off-putting to pray to a baby. Well, look, I like the Christmas Jesus best, and I'm saying grace. When you say grace, you can say it to grown-up Jesus or teenage Jesus or bearded Jesus or whoever you want. Right, it's a good story. Mary and Joseph, they travel, they have this baby, and you'll hear people around this time of year quoting John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son so that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. That's the Christmas verse that gets quoted. But that doesn't really tell you what agape means. It was the fact that God came to this earth in the form of Christ to show what agape really means. And there are other verses that we should be thinking about at Christmas time. Verses like Matthew 5.43 You have heard that it has been said, You shall love your neighbor and hate thy enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, 
Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. It's probably not a message you're hearing a lot about at Christmas time. After all, Christmas is time for family and friends and donating to those less fortunate than you. But how about the people that you can't stand? The people that have wronged you? Another verse we should probably talk about at Christmas time is Luke 23, 33-34. This is what happened when they nailed Jesus to a cross, stabbed him with a spear, beat him with a scourge, put a crown of thorn on his head. This is the meaning of a gape. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So while he's up there, bleeding and dying, practices what he preached about praying for your enemies. Wouldn't that be a great way to really embrace Christmas? Hopefully we've given context to a gape. And hopefully next time someone doesn't get you what you want for Christmas, or someone gossips about you at your job, or somebody steals that closer parking spot when you were all lined up and ready to pull in. Somebody cuts you off in traffic. Instead of shouting, instead of stewing, instead of flipping the middle finger, try agaping the shit out of that motherfucker. Love them. Forgive them. For they know not what they do. Not because you think you'll get something out of it. Not because you think it makes you a better person than them. But just because you can tap in to a love that actually is all around. But take that first step into a a gape also by picking up the phone and laying one of those Greek words on someone who needs to hear it. It takes some guts. It's a step away from the L word and a step out of your comfort zone. But it really is the best gift anyone could give or receive this holiday season. I hope you'll give it a try. Merry Christmas, High Filers, and a Happy New Year. I love you.